Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by another Jonathan, Dr. Giovanni Adami, a rheumatologist in the Department of Medicine at the University of Verona in Italy, an absolutely beautiful city that I've been privileged to visit. It's got a, a gorgeous Roman amphitheater that hosts opera. And anyone who's listening, put it in your list of places to go. So we'll be taking a look at Giovanni's career and research interests in this week's episode. Giovanni earned a PhD in clinical and experimental biomedical sciences from the School of Life and Health Sciences at the University of Verona, where he now works. His work focused on the short-term effects of tumor necrosis factor or TNF inhibitors in rheumatoid arthritis and the risk of fragility fractures in obesity, diabetes, and glucocorticoid requiring diseases. In 2018, he traveled to uh, America. Um, in, in, in the UK, we say you've got your BTA, been to America, to work as a postdoctoral fellow in the Division of Clinical Immunology and Rheumatology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham in America. Giovanni saw clinical trial patients who were participating in a study that we're going to discuss. Dr. Adami used his time in America to enrich his education and skills further, so he took epidemiology and biostatistics courses and was involved in writing two grants, one on denosumab discontinuation and another on improving gout care. The Good Doctor is a prolific author with more than 90 peer-reviewed publications and is the first author in most. He's the author of Osteoporosis, Pathogenesis and Clinical Features, a module that's featured in a textbook published in 2020 and an online element produced by the European Alliance for Rheumatology, um, or EULAR as it's known. When he isn't busy at work, he's busy at home with his wife and children, a four-year-old boy and a two-year-old girl. So I know how tired he must be. Dr. Giovanni Adami, welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello everybody, and thanks for, for having me. It's my pleasure. So let's start at the very beginning. Who or what influenced you to pursue a career in rheumatology? I always like to get people's origin story. Well, there's certainly one man in my life that, you know, had a great influence on me and was my father because he was a rheumatologist. And then he passed away in 2016 when I got my medical degree. And so I probably was the main influence to, to get me to the rheumatology world. He was, he was a researcher as well. And he was dealing with uh, osteoporosis, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, much of the things that I'm doing right now. So that's probably the main reason. Okay. So I mentioned that you worked in America as a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Alabama in Birmingham on whether my coffin, <laughs> I, you know, when I read this, I had to write down phonetically because I'm just a simple surgeon, Giovanni. So pronouncing mycophenolate, phenolate montefil, is pathetic really, isn't it? How this drug attenuates immunogenicity when using pegylated uricase in patients with severe refractory gout. You also uh, investigated factors associated with, with bisphosphonate drug holidays, a question of profound importance in clinical care using the large databases where you were working in, uh, in Alabama. 
Tell us what took you to the US, to to uh, to the USA and specifically Alabama. What your studies revealed. But start, please, by correctly pronouncing the drug. Quite pathetic. <laughs> you have pronounced it very well. Yeah, mycophenolate, and that's that's a th- that was a study really really important. It was a phase two clinical trial, randomized clinical trial, aiming to prove that if you give a patient with gout. Uh, an immunosuppressant, in this case was mycophenolate, you can reduce the immunogenicity of the peglotticase, which is another drug which, aimed to, which is aimed to reduce uric acid in your in blood of patient with gout. And it is tremendously efficacious in reducing uh, uric acid, but it has major, major contraindication where it gets an, uh, an allergic reaction. So most of the patient develops antibodies against these drugs. And so that's why you want to, do, you want to give them, together with the uh, peglotticase, you also want to give them an immunosuppressant, in this case, was the mycophenolate. And was a really important study because now the producer of the drugs have changed the label and you should give them an immunosuppressant when given the peglotticase. So it is a paradigm change, you know, study. This one, together with other studies, larger and uh, smaller, with other immunosuppressants, lead to uh, this change in practice. And the other one is, in my opinion, is a very important study because it deals with the discontinuation of bisphosphonates, which are drugs for osteoporosis, widely diffused. And but many people discontinue these drugs in the fear of of adverse events. Uh, or they have lack of adherence, and it, it leads to fractures and to worsening of their, their osteoporosis. So basically, we want to explore what, what were the reasons for them to discontinue the drugs and how to tackle uh, and how to intervene and reducing the discontinuation rate. And we found some very interesting results in that was very uh, a very important study, well published. So I was very happy to work with the Alabama people on that on that topic. Okay, so my late mother had osteoporosis, and she was on bisphosphonate, and <laughs> she was a lovely lady, and she was very very sweet, and she fractured her hip <laughs> three times. And I'd said to her, you've only got two hips. You're only allowed two hip fractures. And she had periprosthetic fractures. And I watched the whole journey that she went through um, with osteoporosis and and bisphosphonate. And in 2020, you wrote your PhD thesis, as I said, on fragility fractures in obesity, diabetes, and those diseases that require glucocorticoids. Can you, first of all, define what what is meant by fragility fractures and explain why this analysis was so important. Well, the fragility fractures are those fractures that happens when you have a low trauma, low low energy trauma. Namely, if you fall by your head, uh, you have a, and, and you have fracture your bone, those are fragility fractures. You shouldn't fracture your bone by by falling by your head. So that that's the point. That's the main point. And it's very important to study these conditions like glucocorticoid-induced osteoporosis or other glucocorticoid-requiring disease like rheumatoid arthritis or other arthritis or diabetes 
as well or uh, obesity because they tend to fracture with a bone mineral density that is normal. So most of the people with osteoporosis have low bone mineral density. So they have low content in calcium in their bones. And that's the reason because their bone are fragile. And that's the reason for their bone to fracture. But in these diseases like diabetes, they tend to fracture with a normal BND. And that's something really strange that initially was presumed as the protective factor because they tend to have higher BMD levels as compared to general population, like in, uh, in, in, obe in obesity. Uh, patient with a high BMI tend to have higher bone mineral density as well. But they turn out to fracture more commonly than normal people. So that's why we want to explore how, when, where they fracture and how to tackle their disease as well. So in summary, we found, we confirmed that finding. So we confirmed that obese people tend to fracture more than normal weight people, that diabetic, diabetic patients tend to fracture at higher BMD levels. They tend to fracture uh, with very particular, peculiar fractures at the cortical bone. So the hip, the wrist, and then the glucocorticoid induced osteoporosis is really, really diffused, as well as the glucocorticoid requiring diseases that cause fractures. So that's, that, that was the point. And we also demonstrated that drugs that are usually effective in normal osteoporosis are also effective in preventing and treating osteoporosis in, in these conditions. Yeah, so... I guess the takeaway message is it's a lot more complicated than just getting old, having um, low mineral density, right? So, and yeah. in fact, you, you, your research has, has a focus on, or had one of the foci has been on metabolic bone disease, commonly caused by mineral deficiency. So tell us about the range of causes, if you will, outline. I tend to do very well with, you know, classification systems, that there's this type, that type, the other. And so tell us about the range of causes and how we can reduce the patient population presenting with this disease. Because as I saw with my late mum, the wards were full of elderly ladies with fractured hips. Well, yeah. You know, you can classify osteoporosis by primary so or secondary osteoporosis. That's the main classification. It's the, more, the simple one. And it's very, very easy to remember. You have primary when you can find a cause. Basically, postmenopausal osteoporosis or osteoporosis in the elderly, which you can find uh, a real, you know, trigger to their osteoporosis. So they have osteoporosis based on genetics, based on uh, not reaching the peak bone mineral mass in their 20s and 30s. So they, they, they just are unlucky. And then you have the secondary osteoporosis. And in secondary osteoporosis, you can list like 20 causes that are more or less frequent. frequent. The most frequent one is glucocorticoid-induced osteoporosis. So if you take, uh, let's say, 5 milligrams of prednisone, which is a very low dose, for more than three months, we have really convincing evidence that you pose a risk 
to for osteoporosis, for glucocorticoid osteoporosis. Glucocorticoids uh, at very low dose can kill the bone cells, uh, the bone cells, so the osteocytes. They tend to kill also the osteoblasts, so the cells that form uh, bone, that the build bone, and then uh, they tend to the glucocorticoids tend to activate the cells that uh, can uh, eat bone, the osteoclasts, so they break down bones. So in turn, they make a very, very uh, rapid osteoporosis so with very, uh, you know, very bad fractures. This is something that is known from the, the 50s, from the, in the, in the in very, very long time ago. But now we know that also very small doses of glucocorticoids can cause uh, osteoporosis. Then we have an endocrine, endocrinology causes like uh, hyperparathyroidism, or we have uh, other diseases like diabetes, uh, as I mentioned before, but also immobility, like in uh, uh, multiple sclerosis or in patients that have trauma and they, they stay in bed for a long time. Those are also secondary causes of osteoporosis. But probably uh, to, to, to answer your question, how can we reduce the number of patients? Well, the, the big fish here is to reduce the number of patients treated with glucocorticoids, which is, which is not really you know, easy to do. Rheumatologists are really bad at it because we, we use a lot of glucocorticoids, but we have now many, many drugs that are known as steroid-sparing drugs. So they, they can reduce the use of glucocorticoids really, really effectively uh, like in rheumatoid arthritis, um, psoriatic arthritis, or uh, systemic lupus uh, erythematosus, uh, and and we are we are getting better and better. So the proportion of patients is still very high, but is somehow reducing over the time. And this is translated, and we can use also osteoporosis drugs really really well. So there's there's just one data for you to conclude is that. Uh, we have new data that the, the, the impact of hip fracture worldwide is somehow declining. So the, 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 number, the incidence of hip fracture worldwide is declining, even though the population is uh, getting older. And so the, 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 the overall amount will increase in the next decade, but the incidence, the, 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 the rate of uh, new fracture is somehow declining. Why might that be? <laughs> Why could that be the case? Well, there's a many, many explanations. We are good at treating osteoporosis. We are good at uh, doing screening for osteoporosis. Or, or better, we are not good. We are getting better than the past. And then there's probably the most uh, important explanation that we are raising uh, elderly that are more healthier, you know, are healthier than, than, than in the past. So people reach their 70s and they more, uh, you know, like more active with a correct vitamin D, they, they tend to get well-nourished. Uh, so there are, there are many reasons. Most uh, are not known. So we, don't, we really not, don't know why people uh, tend to fracture less. There's a very slight decline in the fracture incidence, 
But overall, and this is very important to underline, overall, the number, the overall amount will increase because the population is increasing and the population is aging. So even though the proportion of patients is lower, the overall uh, population is increasing. So we will probably forecast uh, an increase in the overall number of fractures. Okay. Okay, interesting. So in your thesis, uh, short-term effects of, of TNF, as I said, tumor necrosis factor inhibitors on bone turnover markers and bone mineral density in rheumatoid arthritis. It's a long title, but, but important. You discuss the positive effects of TNF-alpha inhibitors. Can you please provide some details on how these inhibitors might exert positive effect uh, on, on disease activity? Yeah, okay. So basically, TNF inhibitors are laser target uh, drugs using mainly rheumatoid arthritis, but also in other diseases like psoriatic arthritis and so on, pondylarthritis as well. And the the target is TNF, tumor necrosis factor, which is a cytokine that is secreted in the blood of these patients and causes inflammation and synovitis, so arthritis. And and the, the, the inhibition of this cytokine uh, by these drugs, so we have now more than five drugs that uh, target TNF, can decrease the inflammation. And by doing so, patients are getting obviously better. So their disease is controlled. They don't have painful uh, joint arthritis. But also, that was the hypothesis and still working hypothesis, actually. There are many studies ongoing, and we are also doing some studies in this way. But also, they can control the bone aspect of their disease. I, 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 need, to, uh, I need to explain this in a little bit of detail. You know, when you have arthritis, you tend to lose your bone mineral density over the time independently from everything and, and other uh, conditions or other medications. Basically, if you have rheumatoid arthritis, you will develop osteoporosis uh, earlier and probably more severe osteoporosis as compared to a normal person, uh, independently from glucocorticoids or other, uh, other medications. And the working hypothesis was that these TNF inhibitors can reduce uh, the incidence of osteoporosis and can reduce the bone loss. And it seems to be true. The, from the literature, from our study, it seems to be a small effect uh, on bone, which is uh, dependent on many, many factors. One seems to be the vitamin D status, at least in our study, we found that if the patient is vitamin D deficient and you treat with a, a TNF inhibitor, you probably will not halt the bone loss. But if you have a patient with very high levels of vitamin D and you treat them with TNF inhibitors, you can somehow uh, stop the bone loss. And that was interesting and lead us to uh, you know, think about uh, given vitamin D to all the patients. And we actually conducted a study, a randomized trial uh, with vitamin D. Our study was one of them among others. And most of these studies showed that uh, vitamin D is effective in preventing uh, osteoporosis, but also 
somehow controlling disease activity. Thank you for that. Can you can you talk to us about the links between rheumatoid arthritis and osteoporosis and patient dis- predisposition? Obviously, two very different diseases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as I mentioned, uh, well, rheumatoid arthritis lead inevitably in most of the case uh, to osteoporosis. Uh, rheumatoid arthritis was indeed, is indeed, considered as a major risk factor for osteoporosis by many fracture risk assessment tools like the FRAX. FRAX or the DEFRA, which is the Italian version of the FRAX, consider rheumatoid arthritis as a major risk factor for osteoporosis. So the pathogenic uh, mechanism underpinning this association, which is very clear from the literature, probably resides in the inflammation and systemic inflammation, which is characteristic of uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Basically, you have inflammation, you have a very high level of TNF uh, or uh, a lot of cytokines that can uh, increase the activity of osteoclasts. This is a very uh, simplification of of a very, very much more complex topic, but they, they tend to increase the osteoclast activity and this break down the bone and you eventually develop uh, osteoporosis. This is particularly true for rheumatoid arthritis in which the prevalent action is of osteoclasts because we have other diseases like in spondylarthritis in which also, the osteoblasts are affected. So there are cytokines and like uh, interleukin-17 that can stimulate osteoclasts, but at the same time, they can stimulate osteoblasts that are the cells that build bone. So in rheumatoid arthritis, we have the drive toward uh, the osteoclasts, the, 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 the cells that are breaking down the bone, and eventually you develop a lot of osteoporosis, but also erosions in your bone. So it's just peculiar, typically uh, an erosive disease. But in other diseases like uh, spondylarthritis or psoriatic arthritis, you also have neoapposition of new bone in places that bone is not required. That's a problem. So it's a pathological bone apposition but it's a kind of different diseases. And so this is very, very interesting topic. Uh, It's it's largely studied in rheumatology. It's a very hot topic right now uh, in both diseases because we don't know much, much more than that in this this setting. So it's an emerging topic, yeah. Okay, so uh, staying, we've mentioned inflammatory changes. So inflammatory arthritis, encompasses a lot of diseases, broad range and and symptoms. So tell us about some of the more common and interesting causes of these conditions. Well, yeah, we, well, the most common is probably rheumatoid arthritis. The prevalence of rheumatoid arthritis is 1% of the population, general population. So one out of 100 people running in the street uh, might develop in their life rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, it's just very peculiar of, uh, you know, women in their 30s, 40s. It's the peak of the, the peak of the incidence, but it might affect also men, you 
you know, and, uh, and children in some cases. Uh, so you can talk about juvenile arthritis, uh, but also in later in life, in the, in the 70s or 80s. So the, the peak of the prevalence, which is different from incidence, in the, is in the 70s. Then the second most common, which is very, very next to uh, rheumatoid arthritis, is psoriatic arthritis, which is different from a clinical point of view. Many drugs are shared, but it's some, somehow different. Uh, and this is associated with psoriasis. So psoriasis prevalence is about... 2 to 3% of overall population. And one out of three of psoriasis patients will develop psoriatic arthritis. So now we call, we, we talk about, many, many experts talk about the psoriatic disease as a continuum uh, between psoriasis and, 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 and psoriatic arthritis. Then we have a very, very wide range, a very large basket of diseases that are spondylarthritis, like ankylosing uh, spondylitis, which is typical of a uh, younger male individual, and it affects mainly the, the, the spine, so the, the axial skeleton, but also reactive arthritis, which are defined as a spondylarthritis, but are somehow different. So you develop they are called reactive to an infection. So basically you get an infection, like bacterial infection, like a neurotritis, and then two to three weeks after that infection, you develop uh, an arthritis, which it might be destructive and, and be chronic after that. So it might be acute and resolve itself or might, might become chronic. But there are many, many other type of arthritis, like crystal arthritis, like gout. Gout is really, really common and uh, it's, it's uh, under-recognized, you know, under-treated because people said, oh, well, you know, you have gout, you can do, you should, you know, avoid eating meat, which is only in part true, but uh, it's, it's not treated and should be treated uh, more extensively. Then we have other crystal arthritis, like calcium pyrophosphate disease deposition, which is very, very similar to gout, but is caused by calcium deposition. And then we have viral arthritis. Then we have septic arthritis. So there are many, many type of arthritis and painful diseases that the rheumatology deals every day. And trying to differentiate and treating those, these arthritis is somehow very, very tricky. We, we have definition for that, like uh, difficult to treat rheumatoid arthritis. So we, we, some patients are, you know, struggle with their disease. But uh, overall, we have made great giant steps, you know, ahead in the last, I would say, uh, last 20 years for the treatment of these diseases. Yeah, I was, um, I was thinking back to my very limited knowledge about gout, and I just have this mental image of a, um, a curmudgeonly old English soldier officer with his foot up on a stool, smoking a cigar and drinking port after eating a heavy roast beef dinner. Um, and am, am I correct in remembering that thiazide diuretics induce gout? Is, is that correct, or is my memory faulty? Oh, yeah, yeah, it, it, it is. It's correct. The 
you know the the main uh, the main problem with gout is that we believe that there's always a cause for gout for hyperuricemia, and this is not true most of the time. Most of the time, this is just a genetic factor, and ninety percent of the uric acid circulating in your blood depends on your genetic, and only ten percent depend on your habits. So this is not true that this is. Uh, disease of the noble or of the richest because it's it's just genetic and most of the people try to combat gout with uh, diet or avoiding some certain foods but most of the time they they still have uh, you know uh, gout and they they need to get on uh, medication yeah okay i like that disease of the noble elegant <laughs> way of speaking so you give someone the diagnosis of an inflammatory arthritis, such as rheumatoid, and it has an impact on the patients in terms of their mentality and, you know, in other aspects of their life. So I, I've asked this question of other folks in your, uh, your uh, branch of the profession. What, what does the impact of this diagnosis have on patients and maybe characterized what treatments are available other than just primarily treating the inflammatory condition? Well, you know, it's, this is a very burdensome uh, disease. So let's say rheumatoid arthritis, chronic disease, long-standing for their lives, usually diagnosed in the 30s, 40s. So patients are, uh, you know, distracted by that, psychologically distracted by that, because that, that's that's very bad disease. So, yeah, it's really important. Most of these patients develop depression. Most of this, these patients develop fibromyalgia, which is a uh, you know, central sensitization to pain. They eventually have pain for a long time, and the pain sustains itself. So it's a very, very important topic as well. But, uh, and so we, we have actually collaborated with a psychiatrist to search for uh, you know patient complaints how can we deal with the depression how can we deal with uh, uh, you know communicating the patient of their uh, disease it, it also affects uh, drug retention drug uh, you know medication adherence and so on so it's a very very important topic yeah it's a sort of a, another circumstance where a, a multidisciplinary team approach is is beneficial right so you published an article i believe last year you discussing uh, discussed the association between air pollution and flare ups of rheumatoid arthritis which is possibly an association some people hadn't thought of please provide us with some kind of insight into how air pollution affects the risk of rheumatoid arthritis reactivations any specific pollutants, and I guess the uh, the follow-on question would be: Do doctors have to be more involved in the public forum about pollution? Because, of course, in certain countries, including where you did your your research work, um, this is a highly political topic. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, uh, I will start with uh, you know uh, with a little bit of a introduction on where I live and where I practice medicine. Uh, I, I live in Verona, which is in the, in the heart of the Po Valley, which is 
the most polluted area across Europe and one of the most polluted area uh, worldwide. So uh, I know that Verona is really beautiful, <laughs> but uh, we have very bad hair. That's because the Po Valley has a poor ventilation. And so that's why we wanted to explore whether the oxidation, the fluctuation in pollutants might have affected the disease activity of our patient. Namely, if the, the question, the working hypothesis was whether uh, in highly polluted days, their rheumatoid arthritis was more aggressive. And it turned out that it was true. We conducted that study. Nearly three months after that, another group published a very similar study in Milan, in Italy, Northern Italy as well. And then after that, uh, nearly six months after that, Another, another study was published in Saudi Arabia, and they all found out, like us, that uh, if you are exposed to very high levels of, of pollutants, you are at risk of a rheumatoid arthritis reactivation, which was surprising. But, you know, um, from a plausible but, uh, mechanistic effect, it's, it's, it is plausible. It, it has a strong rationale because... We know that the major, a major risk factor for developing of rheumatoid arthritis is smoking. People that smoke have more than sevenfold higher, a sevenfold higher risk of developing rheumatoid arthritis. And so that was really not surprising that if you are exposed to pollution, pollutants, which is really, really similar to smoking, most of the toxic constituents are really similar, are shared. So you can find benzopyran, you can find particular matter, you can find a lot of toxins uh, in, 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 in air pollution as well as in uh, smoking. The, the finding that was, to my, in my opinion, uh, most, in, most interesting is that I mentioned very high levels of air pollution, but I shouldn't because there were, there were no, the threshold for developing arthritis and for reactivation of arthritis was not, was not so high, was nearly below, slightly below the threshold that is considered safe for human health, which has been chosen uh, by the WHO, the World Health Organization, and set at approximately 30 micrograms uh, in cubic meter for PM10. So the particular matter less than 10 micrometers. So that, that's the point. We, we should aim to that threshold, but we have really convincing evidence in rheumatoid arthritis, but also in myocardial infarction, pulmonary diseases, or asthma, asthmatic diseases in children that if you lower more than that, if you aim to a very, very low exposure, you probably will have some benefit. So that, that's the point. And let's get your, to your second question, whether the doctors should be involved in political decisions. And probably yes, but science should be involved. We have now thousands of uh, evidence on air pollution and mortality and increased mortality. Just to mention one, we have one study published in Lancet showing that 
if you reduce to the WHO threshold all the cities in the Po Valley, very large study, European study, well conducted. If you if you lower the threshold, if you lower the exposure in these regions, you can prevent 10% of the mortality. 10%. It's astonishing. So that that and 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 you know in rheumatoid arthritis this is particularly evident because these patients tend to flare during the winter during the the period that are highly polluted and that might be another you know another hint to the policymakers to 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 improve and i know that there are many steps that are taken but probably is 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 too late or too few. Yeah, well, it's it's apparent that the implications of our behaviors are, are profound and legion, and uh, we need to do more about it. So thinking about aspirational uh, questions, were you to find an old lamp that when polished, released a magic genie who granted you three wishes to improve outcomes in your specialty, what would you ask for? Well, very tough question. Well, the first one is probably developing a drug that can prevent disease, uh, prevent the developing of the disease, not treating the disease. So we have new uh, drugs for type 1 diabetes. Like in this, this trial uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, patient, little children with type 1 diabetes were administered with this, this drug and they stopped developing type 1 diabetes, which is a, an autoimmune disease. And stud, interesting study have been, uh, are con, uh, conducting uh, in, in, in also in rheumatological diseases uh, and autoimmune diseases to prevent the development of the disease. Then the second wish will be, you know, this is not a, it's not, it's not a wish, it's probably something that will happen, is to use the big data. Big data in rheumatology are really, really important and really, uh, you know, encouraging data uh, for, you know, from machine learning to, you know, forecast and to forecast fractures or uh, the flares in our diseases. Uh, that will be probably really, really interesting to explore in the future. And uh, probably the, the third one would be to you know increase awareness um, worldwide on many neglected diseases like uh, you know osteoporosis. It is largely recognized by patients, not by policymakers. Uh, they uh, or in some cases, unfortunately, also by doctors. Uh, many doctors think that osteoporosis is uh, in, uh, inevitable and uh, it's a condition of the elderly. You can doing doing nothing about that and this is true also for many other uh, non-communicable diseases uh, in rheumatology as well so that probably will be the the third the third wish well uh, they're well conceived well thought out and your mouth to to the ears of those in power um so i'm afraid that's all we've got time for on this episode of the emj podcast and I'd like to thank you, Dr. Giovanni Adami, for taking the time to talk to us uh, today, for all the insights that you've provided and all you're doing for people living with these diseases. It's been wonderful talking with you 
And I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you in Verona one of these days. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It was a privilege and an honor to be here with you today. Fantastic. So thank you, Giovanni. Um, so, folks, please subscribe to the EMJ podcast if you've enjoyed this. And I guess if you haven't, you wouldn't still be listening. And that way you'll never miss an episode. And check out the archives. There's a ton of uh, podcasts in there. So until next time, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. <laughs>